the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight for you are our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. I bet very few of you thought that when you came to church this morning, you would sing a song that maybe you've never heard before, sing a song that many of you have sung many times before, and sing one more in a language you've never heard before. Get used to heaven. <laughs> I have to tell you that I had sung the first song before, but it had been a really long time since I have ever sung O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And I got a sneaking feeling that the words we sang in the third song were probably African. Isn't that wonderful? Well, that's just the way God works. What a wonderful God we have. If you've got your Bibles, if you've got your message outline or the scripture reading that Kevin just read to you, I want to go back to the eighth chapter of Mark, and I want to reread to you uh, just two verses from chapter 8. And I want to read to you verses 34 and 35, where it says, Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, at first glance at those two verses, there are two things that really stand out about Jesus in those verses. The first thing that really stood out to me when I read this text assigned for this Sunday is the startling honesty of Jesus. The startling honesty of Jesus. See, we can never say that we are called to follow Jesus under false pretenses. Jesus never tries to bribe us and say, yeah, become a Christian and life will be easy. In fact, if you study history, and I, I'm a former uh, history teacher, you're going to see the startling honesty of many great leaders. It's always been one of their great characteristics. Some of you that are a little bit older than I may remember back to World War II when Winston Churchill took over the leadership of the English government and he told them that all he had to offer was blood, sweat, and tears. You go back a few years before that to the siege of Rome, in 1849, Garibaldi, the great Italian patriot, made this proclamation. He said, Soldiers, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger and thirst, hardship and death, but I call on all who love their country to join with me. <clears throat> now, Jesus, too, never sought to lure men to follow him by an easy way. He came not to make life easy, but rather he came to make men great. So that's one thing, his startling honesty. But number two is this, that Jesus never calls upon us to do or to face anything that he himself was not prepared to face or him himself prepared to do. He was not the kind of leader who would sit way off in a remote spot and play with the lives of other people like they were just expendable little pawns on a chessboard. What Jesus asked you and me to face, friends, he's already faced it. Jesus has the right to call on us to take up a cross because he himself already bore one for us. 
But, you know, when you think about this, this really kind of goes against the grain of what the world teaches. The world teaches us that success is measured by how much money you have, by how convenient life is and how easy life is for us. And anything that differs from that, anything that causes our lives to become difficult, well, the world says we ought to cut and run. We ought to avoid it. Vince Lombardi used to say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. But I run into more and more people today who, when the going gets tough, they bail out. They go the other way. They weasel out from underneath it. They don't want to have to deal with anything that causes them to be the least bit uncomfortable. And guess what? It's even infected the church in this world. Modern churches have adopted some of the same attitudes. I mean, many churches, if you pay attention to advertisements, advertise themselves as places offering all kinds of fringe benefits to their members. In fact, if you read their advertisements, if you read their worship folders, if you look at their newsletters, it's almost all more about all kinds of other stuff than it is about the cross of Christ and the call to do ministry. That's why so many people go church hopping and church shopping. See, the world has conditioned us to think that way. We've been taught that everybody else ought to cater to us. All of our needs, all of our wants, all of our desires ought to be taken care of. When that doesn't happen, guess what? We get very unhappy. That's why many churches today are populated with fat little greedy babies. It's all about me, 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 me. Feed me, feed me, feed me, because if you don't feed me, I'll go somewhere else. Grow up and feed yourself. That's what discipleship's all about. That's called getting in the Word yourself. That's called learning to pray yourself. That's learning how to evangelize yourself and not expecting somebody else to do it for you. See, when Jesus comes and he says to us, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, here's the question for the day. We're going to ask this question in a bunch of different ways and hope to answer it. Let's start with the Lutheran question. What does this mean? What did Jesus mean when he said we need to take up a cross or that we need to bear a cross What does it mean when somebody says, I want to take up my cross and follow Jesus? Or maybe more importantly, another way of saying this is, what does the Bible, because it doesn't make any difference what our opinion is, what does the Bible teach us about cross-bearing? Let me answer that question in a number of different ways this morning from God's Word. First of all, cross-bearing is always voluntary. It's always voluntary. Jesus calls us, Jesus challenges us, but it's still our decision. Taking up our cross, following Jesus for the sake of the gospel is always voluntary. Jesus is not going to harass you. He is not going to nag you into submission. He is not going to twist your arm. He is not going to lay a guilt trip on you. It's your choice whether you get involved or not. Now, I'm afraid, however, that generally we're pretty careless in the way that we talk about cross-bearing. For example, let's say that I go to the doctor this week, and after extensive tests, the doctor says to me, Well, Barry, I'm sorry, but you've got diabetes. 
You're going to have to deal with it for the rest of your life. Now, that would be a burden that I must bear, but that would not be a cross that I need to bear. I can't walk around and say, I got diabetes, that's my cross to bear. I can't say that because I didn't volunteer for that. Or if a tornado would sweep through Texarkana and destroy our house, I can't call it a cross because I didn't volunteer for that either. It's not something that I chose to do for Jesus for the sake of the gospel. Or if a loved one is suddenly torn from my life and I go through long days of trying to deal with that grief and filling the empty spots that are there, that's not a cross either. It might be a real heavy burden to bear, but it is not a cross that I'm bearing for Jesus for the sake of the gospel. Friends, if we're going to bear a cross, that means that we voluntarily sign up. We take it up for Jesus and we take it up for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to give myself in some way to serve Jesus. That's what cross-bearing is all about. So if you've got kids that are cranky sometimes, don't walk around and say, oh, that's my cross to bear. You're not doing it properly. You did not volunteer for that. Here's the second thing you need to know about cross-bearing. It's always an act of love. Cross-bearing is not an accident that just happens to us or blindsides us somehow in life or something unavoidable that we can't, you know, uh, get rid of. Cross-bearing is a task that we actually undertake. It's a price that we pay, but it's a price that we pay out of love. We do it because we love Jesus that much. See, for Jesus, it meant going to a cross to die. Why? Because he loved us so much that he couldn't do anything else. He asked his father, Father, if there's another way, if there's another cup I can drink from, but if not, I'll do what you asked me to do. For us, it means reaching out to people who are unlovable. It means reaching out to people who are unlovely. It means reaching out to people who may never, ever return our love. Yet, for the sake of the gospel, and it's always for the sake of the gospel, that's what our text says, we are to keep on loving because that's what Jesus did. It may even mean loving people that aren't going to love you back. Probably would come as no surprise to you that I love my wife and she loves me back. And after 44 years, I think Nancy pretty much understands my idiosyncrasies and all of my annoying habits. And for some reason, she keeps on loving me anyway. I got to spend this last week with my son. And I know one of the last things that we said to each other besides goodbye was, he says, I love you, Dad. And I said, I love you, son. My grandson often tells me that when we hang up, even though he's 20 years old. He said, I love you, Grandpa. That's a neat thing. They love me. I love them back. But, you know, it's hard to love people who don't love you back or who live in a different world or who live in a different culture than you live in. It's hard to love people who actually hate your guts. And yet sometimes when you pick up the cross for the sake of the gospel, that's what cross-bearing means. In fact, I want to give you a description of what cross-bearing is really about. If you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. It's that so-called great love chapter, and you often hear it read at times of weddings. I want to read it, but I'm going to take the word love out, and I'm going to put in the word cross-bearer in its place. I want you to listen to this. 
starting at verse 4. A cross-bearer is patient. A cross-bearer is kind. A cross-bearer does not envy. A cross-bearer does not boast. A cross-bearer is not arrogant or rude. A cross-bearer is not self-seeking. A cross-bearer is not easily angered nor keeps record of wrongs. He does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. A cross-bearer always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. I would suggest to you that's what cross-bearing means. It means taking the love of God to the very ends of the earth, should God wire you up in such a way to do that, touching the lives of people who sometimes are very unlovable, and you do it by denying yourself and sacrificing certain things. It may mean paying the price regardless of the hardships we do because we volunteered for it and we do it completely out of our love for Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. Here's the third thing I'll tell you about cross-bearing. It's hard. I don't have any other way to put it. Cross-bearing is hard. It should come as no surprise that people have always had a hard time with cross-bearing. Whenever the message of the cross has been preached, people have always objected to it. In fact, some people have ridiculed the message of the cross of Christ. They've, They've completely rejected it. See, Jesus, here, and what Kevin read to you before, what did you hear? He's talking about his impending death on the cross, and what happens? The apostles balked. Peter rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine that? Peter, oh, Jesus, don't talk like that. We want you to hang around here forever. You know, up on the Mount of Transfiguration, can't we build some tents and all just kind of live up here in glory forever and ever? You want to know why Jesus turned around and says, Peter... You're Satan. You're doing the work of the devil. He didn't understand cross-bearing. He did not understand that cross-bearing was a hard thing. See, when Jesus died on the cross, they hid behind locked doors. They were fearful of what might happen next. Maybe they were fearful that this cross-bearing might involve them somehow, too. A few years later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about cross-bearing in verses 22 to 24. He said, Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, and then he says this, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, that hasn't changed very much if you really think about it. We can understand the Jews stumbling over the idea of the Messiah hanging on a cross. I mean, think about the Jews in Jesus' day for a moment. They were oppressed people. They had been oppressed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and now they had been overrun by the Romans. But one thing kept the Jews going down through the ages, and it was this, every night, they would sit together as a family. And every night in that family cluster, the father would stand up and tell a story. He would read again the promises of God's coming Messiah. Fathers would tell their children a story something like this. Children, one day the Messiah is coming again to set us free. The Messiah will come on a prancing white stallion. He'll be a magnificent king with legions of soldiers behind him wearing 
beautiful uniforms and our enemies will bow before him and God's people will ultimately be in control. <clears throat> but guess what? The Messiah came. But he was not as they expected. He came as an itinerant preacher from that little backwater town known as Nazareth. Some people called Jesus a madman. They said he was a lunatic. He should be put away. His army consisted of what? Twelve men, one of whom bailed out on him at the end. Instead of great military victories, there was a crucifixion. So the cross became a stumbling block to the Jews. And guess what? The cross is still a stumbling block to the Jews who have not yet recognized that the Messiah has come and come in the name of Jesus. See, it wasn't what they wanted to hear. And it's not what we want to hear all the time either. I mean, Jesus talking about having to bear a cross, it bothers us. I mean, I'll admit, sometimes it bothers me a little bit. You know, sometimes what happens is we're sitting back in our easy chair and our recliner and our couch at home. we got our cup of coffee, a loved one sitting next to us. And we suddenly get this call, the call of God. And sometimes it comes through another person's voice. It says, taking up your cross and follow me. There are some lost sheep out there, and I need a shepherd to go and find them and bring them back. And we say, but Lord, I don't want to bear that kind of cross. I mean, I worked hard. I need a little rest. I need time for myself. Early Sunday morning rolls around, and somebody says, I've got a classroom full of squirming little worms who need to hear the good news about Jesus. But we say, not me. I'm not interested in carrying or bearing that kind of cross. See, Jesus is setting crosses up all around us for us to, well, as he wires us up, to pick and choose. We hear sometimes the pastors say, you know, missionaries need money to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And once again, we suddenly find ourselves clutching our wallets and our purses and wrestling with the cross. I mean, over here are all the things that we have worked so hard at accumulating. And then over there are all the needs of a lost world. And when we sit down, we sometimes hear those haunting words of Jesus again. If you're going to come after me, then deny yourself. Forget about making yourself comfortable, but instead take up your cross and follow me for the sake of the gospel. See, this idea of, a, of carrying a cross was a stumbling block for the Jews. But like I said to the Greeks, it was sheer and utter foolishness. I mean, the Greeks, after all, were civilized. They were a civilization of philosophers. They had Aristotle and they had Plato. They carefully thought things through. They analyzed everything. They tried to come to logical conclusions, but into their logical world came the message of Jesus that kind of tipped everything upside down. Jesus comes and he says, if you want peace, love your enemies. He said, if you want success, learn to sacrifice. If you want to be the master, first learn how to be the servant. They listened to that. They said, that doesn't make sense. And like Mr. Spock in, in Star Trek, that's not logical, Captain Kirk. 
But I wonder what kind of world it would be if we had the courage, if we had the guts, if we had the splanknitsomai, to use the great Greek word, <clears throat> to put into practice what Jesus actually taught. I mean, if we learned how to turn the other cheek, if we learned how to go the second mile, if we learned how to really love our enemies, I wonder what kind of world would be the result. But instead, we find ourselves running around like chickens with our heads cut off sometimes, frantically piecing together our lives, trying to build homes and building a pile of possessions. But one day, guess what? It's all going to be gone. It's going to burn up. It's going to disappear. It's going to be handed off to somebody who's not going to care nearly as much about some of the stuff you accumulated as you thought it was important. And the only thing that's going to last is the cross that we have chosen to bear for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel. You know, history is full of people who, by throwing away their lives, gained eternal life. Let me tell you a story in conclusion. This goes back to the 4th century. Late in the 4th century, there was a Christian by the name of Telemachus. Telemachus decided that the only way to protect himself from the corruption of this world, the only way to serve God, was by becoming a hermit and going and living by himself out in the desert. But one day as he got up from his knees after several days of prayer, it suddenly dawned on him that if he was going to serve God, that he first had to learn how to serve men. And staying in the desert was not really serving God, and the cities were full of people who really needed help. They needed Jesus. <clears throat> so Telemachus bid farewell to the desert, and he set out for the greatest city in the world of that day, the great city of Rome. Now, by this time, all of the terrible persecutions of the first three centuries was over. In fact, Christianity had actually won. Christianity was now the official approved religion of the Holy Roman Empire in the fourth century. Even the Roman emperor himself was a Christian, and so were most of the people. You know, at least in name they were Christians, if not in fact. I mean, being a Christian in the fourth century was the politically correct thing to do, particularly if you wanted to stay in favor with the emperor. Well, anyway, Telemachus arrived in Rome just at the same time when Stilicho, a Roman general, had gained a mighty victory over the Goths. So, so Stilicho was granted a Roman triumph celebration with processions and celebrations, and then they were going to hold these big games in the Roman Colosseum with the young emperor Honorius by his side. Now, like I told you, Rome was supposedly a Christian city, but one thing still lingered from their terrible past. There were still those bloody games that were held in the Roman Colosseum. Now, Christians were no longer thrown to the lions, but still all of those people who were captured in war had to fight and kill each other to make a Roman holiday for the people. 
I mean, still people packed the stands of the Roman Colosseum and roared with bloodlust as the gladiators fought one another to the death. Telemachus found his way to the Colosseum, and there they were, 80,000 people in this big arena. The chariot races had just ended, and there was tenseness and excitement in the crowd because the gladiators were now coming out to fight. And into the arena marched all of those gladiators, and they would stand, and they would turn, and they would say, Hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. And the fight was on. And Telemachus was absolutely appalled by what he saw. Men for whom Christ had died were killing each other just to amuse a supposedly Christian population. It got to him that he finally got to the front row and he jumped over the edge down into the arena and he stepped in between some gladiators and said, Stop! And for a moment, everybody stopped fighting. But then people in the stands began shouting again, Let the games go on! And the gladiators pushed that old man in those hermit's robes down on the ground. But again he got up and he stood between them and said, In Jesus' name, stop! And the crowd now picked up rocks and began to throw them at Telemachus. They urged the gladiators to kill him and get him out of the way. And finally, the commander of the games gave the order, and the gladiator came forward and raised his sword and stabbed Telemachus, and Telemachus lay dead on the Colosseum floor. When that happened, 80,000 people went dead silent. They were suddenly shocked that a holy man of God would be killed in such a brutal fashion. Quite suddenly, there was a mass realization of what this killing was really all about. Historians tell us that the games in Rome ended abruptly that day, and they never, ever began again. Telemachus, by dying, had ended those brutal games. Gibbon, the great historian, wrote this of Telemachus. His death was more useful to mankind than his life. You see, friends, by losing his life, he had done more than he could have ever done by living a life of lonely devotion out in the desert. This morning, whether you are member or visitor or just a regular attendee at First Lutheran, I want to tell you something as your pastor. The only thing we really have to offer you here at First Lutheran Church is a cross. Not really a life of ease. We can't really offer you a church that is perfect with all the solutions to all of your problems. There's no way we can guarantee you success in your job or that you'll even keep your job. There's no way that we can tell you that your marriage won't fall apart or that you'll stop having problems at home. All we really have to offer as a church is Jesus Christ, his cross, and the gospel. I want you to join me now. Let's stand and let's affirm our faith in Jesus. you find it on page four. On a tree in the garden, Adam and Eve sent the perfect creation into a spiral of decay. 
Father, creator of all things, did not abandon us. He continued to care for us and promised the Savior is Messiah, the one anointed to restore all things. When the time was right, Jesus the Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinful, sinless life, proclaiming the kingdom of love and peace through word and deed. To those who were his followers, he spoke of his passion, announcing that he would suffer and die and rise again. His disciples did not understand and couldn't imagine a Messiah who would die. Accused by the religious leaders, condemned by the timidity of Pontius Pilate, mocked by the soldiers and scorned by those he had come to save, Jesus was lifted up on a cross. The sins of all the world were placed on him, and under his weight he died. But the cross was not the end. On the third day, a sign that the sacrifice of the Lamb was a sufficient ransom for our sins, he was raised from the dead, triumphant and victorious, restored to his eternal glory. He ascended into heaven and intercedes for us and will continue to do so until he returns. In this meantime, dear friends, we live in the power of his spirit. We live forgiven, restored, and redeemed. Having been lifted up on the cross, Jesus now lifts the cross before his disciples and says, follow me. Through his spirit, we become people of the cross, living in discipleship and surrender. Please be seated. 